Well, good afternoon and welcome to Marketing Live for Thursday, August 25th, 2016. I am your host, Rob Zinkin. I serve as Associate Vice President for Marketing at Indiana University. And typically I'm at our flagship campus in Bloomington, but today live from our Indianapolis campus, IUPUI. Sorry for the delay getting on the air today, but we're live and ready to go. And thanks for Ashley Butt's help and firing us up. So Seth, great to have you with us. I'm really excited to be here. Looking forward to the conversation. Appreciate the time. Happy fall semester to those of you who started this week as we did. And of course, delighted to have the founder of Higher Ed Lives, Seth O'Dell here, as we are going to discuss selling big ideas. Yes. Higher Ed Live is produced by M. Stoner, a marketing and communications firm that works with education institutions on branding, strategy, web design, and more. M. Stoner is offering a free webinar on analytics for digital storytelling on September the 28th. Analytics provide us with vital information to track and measure audience behavior so we can extend the reach and impact of our storytelling efforts across all of our communication channels. What do you measure and how do you use that data to refine your story? Join M. Stoner for this webinar to get your analytics game on. Registration is free and we're tweeting out a link shortly where you can sign up. Today's live viewing experience is powered by Maestro, the premier marketing tech platform for broadcasters. And again, what a pleasure to have Seth O'Dell for this episode. And Seth, I, I love the energy on campus now that students have returned. But for whatever reason, the start of the school year also has that effect on me of making me feel really, really old, more so than <laughs> my birthday or my kids' birthdays or anything else does. And it doesn't seem that long ago when the tables here were turned back in February of 2012, you were hosting and I was a guest and we were talking about life cycle marketing in higher education. It seems like yesterday. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? It's amazing how fast time flies and uh, I'm excited that the tables have turned and looking forward to this. Absolutely. Well, Seth Odell, of course, again, the founder of Higher Ed Live, currently serving as General Manager of Marketing Services for Helix Education, where he collaborates with colleges and universities to develop their brands, craft meaningful messages, and deliver integrated results-driven campaigns. Many of you are likely familiar with Seth's Emmy-nominated work in his previous role at Southern New Hampshire University, where he was responsible for concepting, writing, and art directing the university's national advertising efforts, including the much-heralded cross-country bus tour campaign. So simply put, Seth is one of the industry's leading creative talents, and fantastic to have this opportunity today. So thank you for your patience. Glad we are live, and we're going to talk about big ideas today. So I'd love to start off, Seth, by hearing more about your current role, the work that you're doing at Helix, and the big ideas that you're most excited about in higher ed for 2016. Absolutely. Um, really excited uh, to be here. So I've been lucky enough to be with Helix Education for a little over a year. Uh, we are a marketing and technology company that works specifically with colleges and universities to help them launch, grow, and manage their programs, primarily online, primarily post-traditional. Uh, in many ways, we are an OPM, an outsourced program management provider, so we actually help schools directly um, in doing that. Um, we also are a full-service agency as well. So work with really dozens of schools across the spectrum from larger to smaller to private uh, to, not, to nonprofit and publics all over across the board really. We've had the pleasure of working with folks. Uh, and uh, the job has been really exciting. As a general manager of marketing services, I get to work with a team of people who are incredibly talented, far more talented than myself, uh, which is always the best situation to be in. Uh, and I get to just be around great folks trying to solve enrollment growth problems, uh, which is something I'm really passionate about, in particular in the online space. Our industry is you know, more complex and competitive than ever. Uh, less students are graduating high school this year than last year. Uh, there's less interest in online and adult programs this year than last year. Uh, so it is harder than ever for us in this space as marketers uh, and that's an area we're able to partner with institutions and help them really find success in, in areas that it's really hard to be successful. Um, and I would say a couple of things. And when it comes to big ideas I'm excited about in 2016, uh, first and foremost, it is for finding new, different, and innovative ways to solve enrollment growth problems. Um, that one is no question important to me. It's time to tighten the belts. It's more and more about ROI. It's finding ways to really just enhance 10 things a little bit rather than just one big splash. And um, that to me is not small ideas, but one big idea really. Um, and then the other one that's exciting to me 
um, that, that we get to do here at Helix is we have a, a process called Authenticity to Action where we do one university, one voice campaigns. And that to me is something we're just seeing emerge where institutions used to market their online programs sort of totally separate from campus. And folks are realizing that, that we not only shouldn't do that, but we can't do that anymore. The market's too competitive. And so doing branding efforts that bring back those online adult programs into the fold of a traditional campus, um, that to me is something that's happening really quickly and, and in, in many ways, very in a very big ways in our industry right now. That excites me. That's a big idea, I think, is just like we revisited branding in higher ed 20 years ago as far as let's unite our, our logos, our look, our identity. Uh, now it's a little bit more of a, a, a complicated enrollment problem. It's how do we bring these different offerings with different audiences under one fold and, and really make them work. Um, that's something I'm pumped about all the time. Well, and we could spend the whole episode and then some just talking about those ideas right there. And I do hope we can we can circle back, but we're going to take a little bit of a different approach with yeah. today's live broadcast and, and talk about the process of selling some of those big ideas. And before we dig into that, I, I do want to dig in a little bit deeper just on your personal journey beyond that basic bio info that I shared. Not so basic because you have had a fascinating professional journey, but when you reflect on that journey professionally. I'm curious if there is a specific experience, a mentor, or any other significant influence that has had a lasting impact on you, Seth, and your career path. Absolutely. Uh, there's a couple. Um, the first small moment I would say um, that I don't always talk to people about is, um, is the fact that when I first started at UCLA, I was working in media relations, uh, and I was asked one day if I knew uh, how to do, use Final Cut Pro. And I didn't, and I told them that I did. And uh, just sort of being maybe overly confident that I could Google my way to success, uh, I said I could do it and figured it out. That one decision changed the whole course of my career. Uh, it opened me up into doing hundreds of videos for UCLA, sitting down with folks like Coach John Wooden, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, um, you know, uh, General Wesley Clark. It just opened up all these doors. Um, and it's funny how I trip back all these experiences to that one moment where had I asked that one question differently, um, my path would have changed. Um, that to me is a small one that comes to mind. Um, one big one that I'm happy to share that I don't know if I've ever talked about before actually, um, was there was a point where I was actually looking uh, to potentially leave um, SNHU earlier than I actually did. Um, and I had, uh, I had another offer and I'm not someone who asks for counters. It's, I don't believe in that kind of approach. Uh, and I thought I was moving on uh, earlier than I did and I'm really grateful I didn't. Uh, it was the greatest four years to be there. Um, but one of the things that I asked for, I was talking with uh, our CEO, uh, who was a gentleman, uh, Steve Hodowns, and, and he asked me what I wanted. And instead of asking for money or title, I told him I wanted an hour of his time every week. Uh, and I had learned that from a woman, Minnie Ho, who was my boss at UCLA. She had really been my first mentor in higher ed. And I kind of experienced the impact that it can, you can have when you have a leader who's really willing to be vulnerable and personal with you and invest time. And so um, I look back at my career and I can say without a doubt the last few years, have been shaped by the fact that when I had a chance to make an ask of a senior leader, I didn't ask for money, I asked for time. Um, and I don't think I was wise enough at the time to realize what I was doing, but I'm grateful that I did more I look back because it was those hour-long conversations every week where I learned so much that I'm still applying now at Helix. And, you know, just so much insights from someone who had been through this for decades. Um, so that was probably from a course perspective another moment that really shaped a lot for me. Great, that's an awesome insight. And we could also probably <clears throat> have an hour long discussion about John Wooden and being an Indiana guy. You know his roots are right here. Absolutely. So uh, look, look up to his leadership and, uh, and everything that he accomplished without, without question. So before we talk about the, the sometimes uphill battle of selling big ideas, I do want to touch on the, the process of coming up with big ideas. And I was reminded of USC President Emeritus Stephen Sample, who passed away in the spring. And in his book, uh, which is fantastic, The Contrarian's Guide to Leadership, one of my favorite parts of that book is when he states that you can't copy your way to excellence. Rather, true excellence can only be achieved through original thinking and unconventional approaches. And for me, the, the biggest challenge is, is what you just talked about, the gift of time, and often setting aside that time to do that type of thinking. But take us inside your head a little bit on this. Where do you draw the inspiration or what are the conditions that you need that help you to do your best thinking, whether that's a specific routine or a process or something else? 
Totally. Um, I actually love that you asked this question because it's one I actually don't think that people talk about enough. And while it's different for everybody, I, I, I think I'd love to share this. A couple of key things. First is the big picture for me. Um, I always want to understand what is the problem I'm being asked to solve? Everything we always do should be solving a problem. If we're not solving a problem, we shouldn't be doing it. And so understanding that, like, okay, we want a new campaign. Why? Right? Being that five-year-old kid that asks why a million times and getting to understanding the core of what we're trying to solve is huge. Um, the other piece for me is trying to have information available. So, so I'm a big believer that the process is research, strategy, creative, campaign, at least as a marketer, my world of, of big ideas, right? So it's always research first, and it's data, and then it's driving strategy. So understanding the order, because a lot of times, um, as someone who came from a creative background, people just get in a room and start brainstorming, and a cool idea is not a big idea uh, unless it's solving a true problem. So. Those are the bigger pieces, but I will say on a very granular level, um, I'm a very, very big feeling person. And so one of the first things I do whenever like we're doing an ad campaign for a client here I did at SNU is uh, I don't set out to understand who they are. I set out to understand what they feel like and what's their tone and manner and their style. And some schools are rigid and proud and formal and some are very warm and neighborly and finding out those kind of, and then what I actually do is I seek out music that reflects that. And so. Um, during the four years I was at SNU, for instance, I was lucky enough to um, you know, write over 30 television commercials and produce those and send them to market. I wrote all 30 while listening to the same seven tracks of music uh, for four consecutive years. Um, and it was the same songs every single time because I found what I felt like was this playlist that felt right. And we never used that music in any of the ads, but I wrote to it because it kept bringing me back to this place where I felt like I understood uh, and was a part of the solution I was trying to create. Yeah, I think that's a, a really important point that, uh, on feeling, and it makes me think of one of my, my favorite authors on that topic, Bernadette Jiwa, and in, in higher ed, we have all these great stories to tell, and we know that, that stories, uh, stories are so important, and she comes at it from the perspective that it's not about our story, but it's about how do we become part of the, the person's story and, and getting inside and understanding what those feelings, emotions are. And obviously that, that came true in the, the campaign that you did with uh, Southern New Hampshire because you really, you really tapped into that. And not a lot of nonprofits have been successful in, in being able to do that in a meaningful way. Thank you. And uh, the other one I'll throw out is um, is a couple of getting out and walking. Huge um, walking meetings. Um, there's a lot of science out there that shows it it, it spurs creativity. Um, and the other one that's interesting is uh, I really think if you're if you're trying to generate big ideas, uh, that doesn't happen between nine to five. Uh, it doesn't mean you have to be a workaholic and work all night and weekend, um, but it does mean that you never get to fully unplug. Um, because I remember the moment that you know the bus tour became a concept, and it was when I was uh, no one will believe me I was working out, but I was working out at my house actually, uh, and it just kind of it was a, one of the few light bulb moments. But there's a lot of times as well when you know you're walking from the car to work, or you're you're for me I'm walking the dog on a weekend. That's the chance to sort of churn through things um, in a in a way there was not pressure. It's just sort of reflective, uh, contemplative, and patient. Um, that kind of approach I think is helpful like letting things sort of marinate like you it'd be great if we could get in a room and have the information we need and knock it out in 30 minutes but but sometimes a lot of times it has to come to us it's something that we just have to put ourselves out there enough that the, that the big ideas will find us when they're ready and a reminder if you have a question or comment please feel free to fire away to seth tweet using the higher ed lab, higher ed live hashtag and He'll be ready for any questions or comments. And I have a great question from our friend Ashley Budd, who, among her many talents, uh, provided tech support to get us on the air today. But <laughs> she asked the question, how do you think about the connection between marketing and mission when developing your next big idea? It's such a great question. I, I think it's one of the most important, realistically, probably, we'll talk about all day, which is um, it's not about us. Um, and it's, it's not about us. It's not about what we want to do. It's not about um, what makes us feel great. It's about um, our duty in serving the institution. Uh, and so the best ideas, the truest ideas, are the ones that are reflected, 
I think, in the mission and the vision of the institution as a whole. And I think that's absolutely critical. And that's one that, uh, you know, when I talk to folks in the industry, I hear all the time that they talk about that, um, that it has to be mission-driven. And one of the reasons is that it's not about what we want to do. It's about what the institution needs us to do. And so when we find those ideas that are really tied back to the mission, that's when those hurdles and those barriers and those things uh, dissipate. And so, so often I think that we pitch, oh, this is a big idea, this is really cool, this is neat, we want to do it, and the answer is why, and it's, well, maybe we want to be innovative or we think it's neat or we think it's interesting, but if we can't make that direct connection to leadership, to understanding that this is just another step forward in the directive that we're taking from our leaders and what they're putting down, whether it's the board of trustees or the chancellor or the president or the provost, that's the kind of stuff that I think is absolutely critical. And so mission-driven is, is, I think, unbelievably the first requirement. And for me at SNU, that was one where um, that was what opened up the door to do things that I think people probably thought couldn't be done. Um, you know, I think far too much credit is given to like the idea of the bus tour uh, and a whole, the whole team of talented folks that brought it to life. But the real, the real success to me is the leadership that approved it. It takes a lot of courage to approve a big idea, uh, especially when it's their collective sort of next on the line. And they approved it, I think, because it was, it was not a new mission. It was just a way to demonstrate the values we already experienced. You know, we talked about how much we care about students. This was a way to demonstrate that. And so it wasn't introducing really a new idea, but just a new embodiment of an idea that's been around for a long time. And that familiarity, I think, is just huge in really making sure that, that these big ideas are out there. And so first and foremost, if you're, when you're concepting or coming up with ideas for your institution, I think it's unbelievably critical that you ask, you know, is this something that I want to do or something that the institution needs to do? And, and they're two different conversations sometimes. And making sure that you find that delineation, I think, is, um, is both liberating. It really helps those big ideas come to life. And the point about the courage on the part of leadership, and that dovetails into my next question about uh, I'm thinking of a colleague and a mentor who I had, and when we worked together, he would often say that money is no object. And sometimes that was really true. It was not an object, but in many cases it was. But the key from the leader's perspective was that he did not want that to be an excuse or a crutch or bottom line, restrict our thinking in any way. And so I think it's, it's hard to remove those barriers. So I want to talk about the budget piece, but I'm interested if we're, if we're too quick to put constraints that may be real or maybe more perceived and what are some of those things that, that constrain our thinking that could be barriers that we may assume too quickly that that's a real barrier when maybe it's just a perceived barrier and how do we sort of break free from that? I think that is an absolutely huge problem and in particular in higher ed right now where we almost self-censor ourselves and, we're, and we try to explain why things couldn't happen or couldn't be done or we couldn't afford it or it's too expensive. Um, and, and it's something I've tried to fight all the time, wherever I've been in my career, has been that like truly big innovative ideas aren't restricted by the realities of executing them. Uh, because at some point you just figure out how to make it happen. And that's a separate conversation beyond whether or not the idea is beautiful and valid. And for some reason, I do think people self-censor or hold back. Um, and I've had this conversation with, with folks in my career a few times. Um, where I, I really don't want resources to ever restrict anything. I mean, we wouldn't have done a bus tour if we thought if we started with pitching how much it costs, right? We wouldn't do half the campaigns I've done in my career if we started with how much they cost. The first thing is, is this is this a truly big idea, something we want to do? And then you worry about execution later. I think that um, it's not a budget conversation yet. Uh, budget comes down the road, um, but we're not pitching an execution first. First, we're floating the concepts around. We're getting buy-in. And I do think people far too often will think we, we can't afford this or we don't have the budget. Um, and I, I don't know, I don't have a lot of patience for can't. And I think that people need to just understand that, um, again, as a, someone who came up in the creative space, I think it's true for everyone, but I'll say from my perspective, um, if you want to do big innovative work, the heartbreaking reality is a lot of wonderful ideas will never make it out the door. And you have to be okay with that heartbreak because you live for the 10% that do. You live for the 10% of the time, you can sell that concept all the way through, you can make it happen, you have complete buy-in, and it's a beautiful moment. And those moments may only happen a few times a year or a few times a career, but those moments make up for all the other times it hurt. Um, and people need to be willing to let their heart get broken a little bit. 
and you know put themselves out there, do all the work, not worry about budget, and then worry about budget later. Because one, if they can't later, fine, it was still right to put the idea out. But more importantly, if they do that, I think they'll be surprised how many times, to your point, um, budget isn't as much of an issue as people think. It is if that's what you're asking for, but if you're asking for money, that you're asking the wrong thing, right? I mean, that's not where the conversation should be starting. Mm -hmm. I remember your EduWeb keynote, and I think the, the comment about securing budget when there's no budget left was one of the things that was retweeted many, many times. <laughs> I think that's a concept that resonates well with our higher ed, live, our higher right. ed colleagues. Yeah. And are there, are there other barriers? Uh, budget comes to the forefront, but uh, uh, similar barriers that, that restrict our thinking when it comes to selling big ideas. Yeah, absolutely. I think people worry about um, how too often. I, I think they worry about how are we going to make this happen. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily something you have to worry about immediately first step. I mean, the first thing that we're trying to do is get these ideas out there, marinate them, have conversations because, you know, they're not our ideas. They're not fully formed. What we're floating is ingredients. We're fostering. We're chumming the waters. Um, and as we're having those conversations, things will come together. But a lot of times people worry too much about, I don't have the staff for this, so there's no way I can do it. And, and, and don't get me wrong, it's, you know, I'm not, sometimes it is really hard. Sometimes we don't know how we're going to get it done. But when I look back on my career, all the best work that I've gotten to do has been because there's been people around me that are willing to do whatever it takes to make it happen. Because you know we can think we don't have the resources or the bandwidth, but you know all of a sudden when we have the chance to make this happen, we get really resourceful, incredibly resourceful, uh, and we can find ways. And so that that is a big one to me. And then the other big hurdle I think is just people understanding how they should kind of go about that pitch process, right? It's it's like they think that you sit down with your boss and you ask for a lot of money and approval on something. Um, and that that's not the first step at all. And I think that that's a piece for people is that they think the hurdle is getting approval and there's actually a lot of steps that come before approval is ever even a factor in the conversation. Yes, well, let's unpack that because I, I believe in that wholeheartedly. I think back to my previous work in development and it could often be a challenge working with board members who were reluctant to get directly involved in fundraising because not everybody wanted to ask for money. And my role is to help them understand and value the entire process and see their role in that. And the solicitation was actually just a very small fraction of that overall process. So um, it was everything else that determined whether the actual ask was successful or not. So I think that's very, uh, runs in a parallel path to what you just talked about, that we put too much focus on the pitch. Yes, the pitch is important, but it's everything that goes uh, that precedes that and all that goes into the, the preparation and the work ahead of time and establishing yourself. So talk, let, let's, let's back up from the pitch and talk about all those ways that, that you can position yourself for success. Absolutely. So yeah, it first and foremost starts um, personal. I mean, to me, one of the lessons I learned in my career is it's not about buying, it's not about budget, it's about buy-in. And it's not about buy-in and the idea, it's about a buy-in in you. Um, that is first and foremost just an absolutely critical piece. Uh, and that's something that I really was lucky enough to sort of learn accidentally in my career is that, you know, it's about a value exchange. We have to provide value for our teams, for our leaders. We have to drive the institution in whatever capacity we are capable of doing. And it's first and foremost buy-in in an individual. Then it's buy-in in a department and the vision of the department. You know, and we do then eventually get into buy-in into the idea but all of that has to be that we have to be looked at the kind of people that, that folks can trust and they're willing to have conversations with. And one of those simple things is just having a seat at the table and it's not the formal table. It doesn't need to be that formal committee table. It's just a, sit, a seat at the right table with people where they're willing to be vulnerable with you, your boss or colleagues or someone. All it takes, and it's surprising me so much how few people do this, is asking someone to go to lunch. Um, and, and I'll say I learned all this the hard way. Um, because, I mean, one, one story I'm happy to share, I was at, when I was at UCLA, I got invited. I'd said yes a lot. I said yes to shooting videos. I'd, I'd really stepped up, I think, in a way from my boss and done all these things for her that she was getting pressure that we had to do web video, but she had no resources. Well, I said I knew how to do web video, and I didn't know how to do web video, but I figured it out, and I figured it out working nights and weekends. And so what I did is I, I did something for her. I positioned her where she was able to make something happen, and she looked great. The reality is, look, we're doing all these web videos like we're supposed to be doing. We didn't need any more resources because somebody somewhere is doing it. Um, and so I was feeling really good, and I thought I had it all figured out, and I got invited to be on this committee for a campus tour. And um, 
it was to figure out a campus tour solution. And I thought it was, you know, what could we do to the coolest, most innovative campus tour? Uh, but in truth, it really it turned out it was more like, let's pick a vendor and which vendor we're going to work with. Um, and I didn't know any of that. And I thought that, like, being in the show meant having a seat at the table. Uh, and really, being in the show means knowing how to play. And so I showed up, and I just wrecked the worst pitch of my life. I mean, I firehosed these people with this crazy idea. We were going to do this YouTube annotated, customized tour. We're going to do all this amazing stuff. And they weren't ready for it. And it was, if you're seen like the UHF movie, it was like drinking for the fire hose. And they were just overwhelmed. And I got kicked off the committee. And I wasn't invited back. And I was told my ideas were too big. And for a long time, I was bitter about that. And I really thought that it was me. And I had made a mistake. Or it was, it was not me. Excuse me. It was them. That I had made a mistake. That they had made a mistake. Uh, and then I learned, you know, down the road that that's not true. And one of the things was Lawrence Lockman, who was the, the, ran that department then and now is with Penn State who's become just continue to be someone I admire and look up to and has, look, has been very gracious to spend time with me in my career. He told me, if you find yourself doing a big presentation, laying out your idea for approval, you've probably lost. That goes against everything I thought growing up. I was, it, it, the fact that I thought you go in, the, the pitch is solid, and if it's logical and it makes sense, they either say yes or, or they're wrong. And the reality is I found myself doing that, and it was my fault and not theirs because, you know, he said, Lauren said, uh, big ideas typically contain some risks that you have to work through with people, which takes time. And this is where so much of higher ed goes into problems. People are territorial. People are concerned. People are protective. You know, we are an industry that can be siloed. And so I went into this committee with folks from all over campus, and all I did was institute risk. Let's do something that's never been done. But we're a, a public institution that's well-respected, that's very stable, that's risk-averse. Uh, and maybe I never would have been successful, but if I had, it would have been in being honest and upfront enough to know that it's the meetings before the meetings that make the difference. It's the time with those people, the relationships, um, making sure that once you show up, it's not your idea, it's everyone's idea. All of that, all that I learned the hard way uh, because I used to think it was showing up to the meeting with a really good pitch deck and just kind of, you know, making it happen. And uh, it's much more. It's about relationships and trust. Um, and that stuff is just such a key factor, I think. Mm -hmm. And I love the comment about that if you want people to say yes to you, you've got to be the kind of person, the solution-oriented person, the go-to person that say, says yes to other people. And often that involves, and you hinted toward this, is you, you may not be the one to get the credit. Yep. Um, and, and that has to be something that you're willing to, to accept. So that's just, again, you said you had to learn that the hard way, but it, it does. It fundamentally goes against sort of everything where – that's ingrained with us, especially in such hierarchical organizations. Absolutely. The, the credit piece is just so unbelievably huge, and it's one that I'll say um, is, is something I, I still struggle with and work with in my career, uh, to be honest, but it's so incredibly important. Um, it's the fact that if people think it's their idea, I really honestly think they're going to be much more supportive. It's They're not trying to approve you. They're approving something for the institution. And that goes back to that idea, I think, where what we're doing is working on behalf of the institution. This isn't about us. This is about the institution, the mission, the vision, what we're really trying to make happen. Um, and, and just to go back to Lawrence again, because one, one of the benefits of my career is I've been surrounded by people significantly smarter than myself. And I was just somehow only wise enough at least to know I needed to listen. And, and one of the things that Lawrence told me was if they've forgotten it was your idea and view it as their own, you'll succeed. Uh, and, and I've seen Lawrence do, I mean, he, he redid logo designs at Penn State. He redid logo designs at UCLA. I mean, we all know that level of work is a different stratosphere than, than something else. When you're aligning all the graduate schools and athletics and everybody else, and what, what he would do is it was, I mean, by the time the presentation happens, he, he told me this when we talked recently, he said, by the time the presentation happens, it should be boring. Your pitch should be a bore because everybody should know it, everybody should be bought in, and they should all be like, yeah, we've been talking about it forever, exactly, and that's when you make the ask um, and when everyone feels that sense of ownership. But part of that I do think is being honest enough to say that it's not, you know, it's not your idea. It's, it's everyone's idea. It's collective and helping people see their fingerprints on it. For us, even in the agency world, that's a huge piece, making sure that our partners see that when we're doing brand development work, we're not just coming in and giving them something cool or shiny. What we're giving them is an authentic reflection of themselves. And so they need to be able to see their fingerprints and the comments and the conversations they've had. Um, and then it really, at the end of the day, it's their idea, not ours. All we are is a filter. Uh, and, and maybe we can get credit for being a filter, but we don't take credit for the idea because the idea is ultimately is shared. And um, I'm try I've learned a lot about that over my career, I can say safely, uh, but it's probably one of the most important lessons. 
Well, you've given some great insight about how selling is is truly a, a people business. And so your idea about how you sell yourself, uh, I think is really critical, especially for people who may, may be too prone to define themselves based on their title or their place in the organizational chart. So the, the tips that you've provided on how colleagues can better position themselves uh, to be able to eventually sell that big idea when it comes is, is really valuable. So because I think those are such hands-on tips that, that people can do this afternoon or tomorrow, is there anything else there? I really want to get into that beyond some of the things that you, that you talked about um, and, and working across departments and units and uh, just trying to get at the table. Um, any, any other things that we should be thinking about of how do you position yourself to get that seat um, at the table, even if it is just, as you said, more of an informal seat, but it, it, it's the opportunity to have those important discussions that pave the way for success down the road. Totally. The, so there's a few things, I think. Um, the first and foremost is that, you know, you need to raise personal awareness as well as like departmental awareness. People need to be aware that you're there. Um, and that's the first and foremost. So one of the simplest things to do with that uh, is to ask questions. People innately enjoy talking about themselves. Uh, and typically people have very incredibly inexperienced backgrounds and there's a lot we can learn from that. And so one of the first things to do is just, just be your own reporter. Um, have conversations. Um, I promise even the most difficult people uh, will will enjoy if you ask to have time on their calendar to learn from them and ask. So find what are some areas where this person has a background or an area where you could benefit and, and ask for just a little bit of that time. Uh, the other is don't don't punch too far above your weight class right away. As far as like, it'd be great if we all go and have lunch with the president, but maybe not. But maybe we can go have lunch with the assistant director of the alumni association. Uh, that would be really great too. Um, and don't think that the only value comes from folks at the top, but really oftentimes, you know, I've, some of the best insights I got at SNHU that went directly into the campaigns, you know, came from the, the academic advisors um, that were working there. That group of people, I would walk that floor and have conversations with people and I would learn as much from them as I did from our president because they were on the phone each and every day with our students. And so don't ever undervalue, I think, the value of others and realize that anyone's time is valuable. Um, I'm a big believer in asking for lunch or for coffee. Um, if and when time permits within our own company. It's tough on the outside, um, but I think that's one that internally like build and foster those relationships. And then, you know, it's the classic uh, Stephen Covey stuff. It's, you know, seek first to understand, then to be understood. Um, it's not about going to lunch and sitting down and telling them about yourself. It's about understanding them and what makes them tick and what they're looking to do and then how you can contribute and help um, even in some small way. And then if you can provide that value and have that value exchange, you know, a lot of the rest of it comes pretty naturally, it opens up. So um, I, I would say this too, like I think it's not weird to sit down and say, who are five people I'm gonna write on a piece of paper that I wanna have a stronger relationship with at this institution, and then meaningfully work to make that happen over the course of three to six months. Um, identifying that I think actually makes sense, but I don't know if people really always sit down and do that. I've always done that in my career. I will write down the names of the people I seek to understand and to build a partnership with within my own organizations, and then I'll, then that'll be a task. That's an assignment I give to myself is to go out and try and make that happen. Um, I think that's that's a super practical thing to do. Uh, and the other, the biggest one I've said I think twice already, David, is is understand the power of vulnerability. Um, asking someone for their advice or can they check something out or what do they think about something. Um, people innately want to help. They do. We all do. Um, but in order to help, it means that we have to be vulnerable. So don't, don't go around thinking that you can show everybody you know everything. Um, the best thing you can do is be humble and know that you don't um, and ask people to teach you and help you and give their feedback. Um, I've always found that even the toughest, harshest critics uh, will warm up a lot when, when they know that you know you're not the best in everything, and maybe there's a few things you can learn. Um, I've always found people tend to jump in and help when that happens. Well, your, your comment about uh, taking advantage of opportunities to, to ask a colleague to lunch or to coffee, and uh, a comment via the, the hashtag, and, and someone asking about uh, any thoughts on asking higher-ups to lunch to build relationships and getting that started, and, and what about gender difference? And so you, you did make the point, you, don't necessarily start at the very top, but any additional thoughts on those who may find, again, especially within higher ed where the, 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 those titles may be intimidating in some cases, or um, in this case, the question about gender difference, but um, any other tips on ways to sort of get in the door 
um, and and be, have those beginning points of, of a relationship where you you can establish the comfort level. Well, yeah, let's go let's go have coffee and and have an informal chat and just share some ideas. Totally. Uh, so I have, I have a couple points. Um, one of them within the institution itself, if it's in your own institution, um, point, don't leap too high. You work your way up. Um, but I would say the higher up you go, the more and more important it is to communicate exactly what the ask is. It can't just be, hey, can we go get a cup of coffee? I'd love to ask you a few questions. Um, but if you're working in marketing and you reach out to the athletic director and you're saying, you know, I understand you're incredibly busy, um, but is there any chance that you might be able to spare 20 minutes sometime this fall wide open, you know, to have a, get a cup of coffee with me? I have some really specific questions um, around what you're doing and what your needs are from marketing. I just want to be sure that we're the best partner we can be. Um, immediately, all of a sudden, that person, uh, you know, he or she is thinking like, okay, I'm going to go do this, and they're going to ask me what I need. They're going to help me be a better partner. And then specifically, throw out some times. I'm available. Boom, 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 boom. You want one email response. Sounds great. I'll see you Tuesday. Like You never want to have a thread where you need more than one response. Um, so it's not like, sure, what time works for you? They don't have time for that. Uh, you got to be really, really specific. Um, the other thing I'll say is if you want to build a relationship with people outside of your institution, even if they're higher up, um, understand that email is really tough to get through, so be really clear, but you can arguably figure out the email address of almost anybody. I have cold emailed many people that are CEOs of companies just by looking at who, the, what, how they structure the email of their PR person. You know, is it first names, first initial, last name, and doing the same thing to the CEO and just shooting off an email. And more than half the time it goes through, sometimes it doesn't. And when it does, I've, I've had lots of email conversations with CEOs. So, um, you know, don't be afraid to send it is the other thing. Like, it's not rejection if they say no. They're just really busy. Uh, most people are really busy. So as long as you're willing to put yourself out there um, and understand that, that every time you ask, you might not get a yes. I mean, what's the worst thing that happens, right? So, okay, you want to reach out to a few senior leaders, find a way, make a really specific ask of what you need from them, list out the times, talk about how you can, this is what you're looking to understand, and maybe if that's valuable to them, then you love to do it. So it's all about what value, what value you can ultimately provide to them by them providing initial value to you, and then send it to five or six. And it's okay if only two say yes. If two say yes, that's awesome. That's better than none. Um, I, I think those would be a couple of things I'd consider. Great. Um, I, I also appreciate your perspective on on efforts to break down silos and the, the, the tip about uh, and your your experience working with academic advisors and, and how helpful and beneficial that was. And I, I think of previous roles where uh, within my team we really worked hard to position ourselves to have a member of our team on as many search and screen committees as possible. Uh, it was a great way to get behind the curtain for another unit or department, especially faculty searches too. So uh, when you talk about in, in your keynote, growing your team without growing your team, um, it, all these different ways that you can build allies through throughout the campus, throughout the organization who, and again, I think it goes back to your point about mission too, because when you're talking about the mission, everybody can see their place in that. Yeah, there's there's two. First off, I love your idea. You're you're that's probably an unbelievable nugget of advice because um, search committees are usually that dreaded thing that we all duck from. We're like, oh no, I'm on a search committee. But you're right. It, what it really does is it provides you a chance to sit around the table from people all across campus and immediately help someone else with something that's really important to them. But we dread it because it's not important to us. And maybe making that time. I love that. I love that idea. Uh, I'm totally going to use that one. Talk about it all the time. That's such a great suggestion. Um, the other ones for building your team. Yeah, there's two kind of key things when I talk about building your team without building your team. The first one is the one you mentioned, which is the fact that your team isn't defined by your organizational structure. And so the more allies that you can build, the more support you have, fundamentally the difference in approach that you do. And so all of a sudden, you're not a, a marketing unit trying to do your own campaign. You're an institution doing a campaign. And all of a sudden, athletics is involved, and development is involved, and each of the graduate schools are involved because you've taken the time to involve them. And suddenly, that's the resources that are there. Now, maybe in doing so, you don't get to be the quarterback, right? Now, maybe you end up playing just another really critical role within that, um, and you're a coordinator, and that's OK. Uh, and so that's one piece. The other piece I would say is um, when I talk about grow, how to grow your team without growing your team, it's understanding the destination but not being afraid to be patient to get there. So when I left, or today at SNHU, there's four full-time video editors in their broadcast studio, um, uh, three of which I was really lucky enough to hire uh, when I was there, and another one that's been hired since I, I left. Um, but that didn't start that way. When it started, I did video and social media first knew by myself. So I ran all their social channels, I shot all their video, much like many other institutions um, that were smaller. And so I started with, well, can I get a student worker for you know 10 hours a week? And we only had to pay, you know, it was, it was, I think the rate was $12 and it was split, we paid half. 
okay, I could find you know 60 bucks a week, found that budget, great. Then I started to track what they were working on, and I said, can I up that a little bit? And can I get two people at 20 hours a week apiece? And I was able to say, okay, yeah, because they're seeing the results. They're seeing the ROI of what's coming from these people. They're seeing the videos going out. Yeah, yeah, we can find that. That budget's small. Then I was like, well, we have some big projects, and I was able to present this plan. And I said, we can do all this, but only if we have a full-time contractor for three months. And they looked at it, and they looked at all the projects, and they're like, well, it, now the, it's not do we want to fund somebody or not. It's do we want this amazing work and this strategy or not. And now we know the, the, the budget is just a way to get it. So they said, okay, we're going to fund this position. And then when that three months was coming up, I then put another proposal forward because I really believe in you pitch plans at this point. You're pitching a plan. And the plan was here's all the things I could do if we took this full-time contractor and made it a full-time position. And then and I said, or we can just go back to student workers. And now this was the exchange. It was like, you could do all this amazing stuff. And I was ramping them up. And this was all over six months. And I said, okay. Then they got a chance to hire a full-time person. And that full-time person that I hired is just one of the most talented women I've ever been around in my career. Uh, but she hadn't ever edited television commercials before. She was at a school a couple years, um, and we were lucky enough that I think anyone who's done enough interviews, enough hiring, you just sometimes have that gut, and you know, and, and she was fantastic. But we didn't ask for someone who had 10 years' experience editing commercials that needed some unbelievable salary. We asked for someone a few years out of college who we knew had the grit and the talent to do great work, and they just needed the runway, and they just needed the support. And so from there, that ask was possible. And then from there, that first commercial she did was nominated for an Emmy. And then from there, it was, oh, here's what we can do with another student worker tacked on. Now here's what we can do. That's not a student worker, but a second full-time position. Hired someone else who hadn't done editing full-time. And all of a sudden, they're now this giant studio, four full-time people editing all these commercials, all these things. Unbelievable work going through, but that never would have happened if we asked, can we build a studio? Can we build a studio and hire a bunch of people? We're going to need all this money. No, but today... The resources that the institutions wanted to put behind it are fundamentally different because they've seen the consistent benefits that we ramped into it. Now, the truth is we knew from day one that's where we were going, but nobody else had to know that. They just needed to know that here's the things that we can do with two student workers instead of one. Here's what we can do if we take those two student workers and make a one full-time contractor. And we eased into that conversation. Um, you know, it's it's just like dating, right? Like we don't need to get married right away. They didn't. We didn't need buy off on the big idea. It'd be okay if we never reached the big idea because we did all sorts of great work along the way. Um, so when we had that big idea, we held it a little bit closer. We protected it. We marinated it, and then we just kind of chunked it out into these smaller pieces. Um, and we were able to build our team without really building our team because you don't think that your team has grown when you add a student worker for ten hours a week. But when you know how that ten hours is going to go to twenty hours into two two at twenty, all of a sudden. It is growing, um, and I think a lot of times when we think about growing our teams, we think about, well, once a year, there's an annual budget cycle, and I'm going to go in and ask for three new positions, and my boss is going to immediately cut it down to two, and then they're going to come back and cut it to one, and I'm going to fight like crazy, and if I'm lucky, I'm going to get that one position. Um, and, and as great as that is and as important as annual budgeting is, and that's a piece of it, um, if you want to really grow your team, I think you have to have a longer vision and more mile markers along the way of little incremental changes you can make to get there. And I'd like to touch on the, the team piece and the, the staff and colleagues piece from a little bit different vantage point because in, in higher ed, obviously we know typically very consensus driven and it's not about always selling to leadership, it's about selling to colleagues, to committees, which then makes me always makes me think of the, the Seth Godin purple cow comment that when a committee gets involved, each well-meaning participant stands off the rough edges, uh, speaking up for how their particular constituency might not like the product. So this whole point of, of broad-based buy-in in higher ed, which we know is important, but total buy-in is, is often not feasible and probably should not, really should not be the goal. But how about that delicate balance of getting enough buy-in to meaningfully move forward, getting enough buy-in to get to the next step? Yeah, I, I think that's super critical. There's a couple pieces with that I will share. And if this one doesn't directly answer, let me know and we'll circle back. But it's one anecdote that just came to mind when you talked about that. One of the first ones is um, you really have to stop and ask yourself, are you playing someone else's game or do you have the ability to set the rules of the board that you're on? Um, and an example of that that I tripped into in my career was when I was at UCLA, I was really lucky enough to be at UCLA during like the boom of digital. 
uh, when social media was just coming out. And one of the things is I never asked if we needed a YouTube channel or a Twitter account. I just did it. Now, but I didn't just do it in, under the mindset of like, oh, you know, beg for forgiveness or ask for forgiveness, don't beg for permission, and I'll never tell anyone. I set it up, and as soon as it's set up, I sent an email to some people and I said, love to get a group together and talk about how we can best use YouTube. I've set this account up. Here's some videos. We got 1,000 views yesterday. I think there could be some things. Really excited for your insight. And when I did that, what I realized was like I just shifted the conversation of whether or not we should do it and negated that. I just did it, but then I immediately brought people in, and the, the invite that I gave them was, let's get around and talk about how I can get your insight, and all of a sudden, there was an ability to control the board, and so one of those is, questions I always say is, like, are you able to control the game? Are they your rules that you're playing by? Because, you know, if for so many times with committees and things, like, does it need to be a committee? Can we get out ahead of that? Can we talk to leadership on the side? Can we talk about how four or five people can do something really influential? Can we talk about how maybe this needs to be a skunk works project that's more protected? You know, or even if right when we're starting out, can we have a conversation with, with people and be candid and vulnerable about the fact that we're concerned this many people, the project could go a certain way? Uh, and sometimes you can't. Sometimes it's totally directive from the top down. This is the path you have to take. And, and to your point, sometimes you just can never reach that complete consensus. Um, and when that's the case, I think the biggest thing is I turn a little bit more um, to just kind of the classic uh, marketing uh, kind of mantras, which is about people don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it. Um, and it's Simon Sinek who talks about that. And the idea that, like, it's okay, as someone who pitches creative campaigns all the time, we've done, I think, eight integrated creative campaigns in the past six months for different institutions, um, you're never going to please everybody. And so one of the things is we first controlled the process. We pitched a creative campaign book as, like, one of the key milestones. First, we pitched the strategy guide, which is, like, a magazine piece about you. Does this feel like you? Yes. Then we pitch creative, but it's conceptual creative. It's not literal. Then we go back and give them creative to go to market. And in doing that, what happens is like it's okay if you don't all like the billboard, but do you like more importantly the strategy behind the billboard? Like, do you do you all believe in and agree that this is a reflection of who we are? Great. Well, then we know that there won't always be consensus on the execution. But separating those two, because oftentimes people will go in with this, you know, beautiful creative campaign, totally buttoned up, totally executed, as one as one example. And it's like, well, I hate the billboard, so this just isn't going to work. And it's like, well, no, it's totally going to work. It's it's a great reflection of us. We believe in it, and you can hate the billboard all you want. They won't do the billboard, or maybe we will. And you just you know don't have it. You don't get to have a have your way. Um, but we'll figure that out. And that that's the other piece is. Um, I've heard in my career a few times that you know everyone can have their say, but they can't always have their way. And understanding those distinctions is really important. Um, so whose opinion are you getting just so they have their say? And who has a vote? Um, because a vote and a voice are not the same things. And so figuring that out early in the process, too, can really help that you know it's OK if not everyone's in love with everything. Um, but who's the person that's going to really green light this or, or you know, put it back in the drawer? Yeah, that's a great point. And I think something that you need to think of too when you're being something to keep in mind when you're being pitched to or, or when others are coming coming to you. It, it makes me think of uh, of senior teams that, that I've been a part of and how important it is that, yes, uh, you want to have an open environment and everyone can share their ideas. But once a decision is made, everybody aligns, whether you agree or not, that everyone walks out of that room knowing that we are going to support the decision that was made 100% both publicly and privately and how important that is to, to move things forward. Totally. Absolutely. So you, but man, you have covered so much ground. Um, could we wrap all of this up in, in sort of a uh, three or five takeaways to, to review and, and, and package all this up for people and, and thinking about as they think about selling big ideas at, at, at their institution or even maybe thinking bigger. This is, it's not just about selling the idea. It's more about leading, leading meaningful change, leading change at their institution. Absolutely. I'm happy to share. I have a few kind of really kind of key points I'm happy to share with that. But I think your point about it's really about leading change is so true. And the fact that leading change doesn't require any specific title or not. Anybody can be a leader in a linchpin in their institution. Uh, and anyone to be candid that's taking the time to watch something like this is someone who cares deeply about their institution and wants to drive that kind of meaningful change. So first and foremost, the message loud and clear is that you absolutely can. Um, but if you think the red carpet's going to roll out for you and the doors are going to open and the birds are going to sing, uh, they're not. And so what it means is you have to be incredibly, incredibly strategic uh, and not just work harder, but more importantly, work smarter. And that's how we get those ideas through. And so when I look at like the five pieces of advice I give people, you know, number one is win with the team you have. 
you have to unequivocally be able to win with the team you have right now. If you can't do that, no one's going to believe in you. Nobody believes in someone who says, I can do something, but I need more first. So show them how you can do it now, win with the team you have, and then grow that team. I've been really lucky to be able to grow a few teams in my career, and each time it was showing how we could do something really bare bones. Sometimes it's bad news bears. We're just getting in the room. We're making it happen, but also all the time advocating for the people, making sure people see we can't do this forever. This isn't sustainable. Or look at the, the level we'd have. But first and foremost, you can and you must win with the team that you have. Uh, the second one is, is obvious, um, but it's always secure buy-in before budget. If you're looking to pitch a big idea and you want to go in with a dollar sign, that's the wrong move. Nobody wants to have a, you know, nobody's boss wants to come back from lunch and then have someone pop in and say, hey, any chance I can have $30,000? Like, no, what? That's not a way to spend a Thursday afternoon. Secure buy-in, first in yourself and then in the idea. Then get the people excited. Then get them to want to see what that roadmap is. And then ultimately, yeah, the roadmap has a sticker price on it. Um, but you want to secure buy-in before budget. Um, the third one is what we talked about, which is credit is the enemy. Uh, it, for a lot of us in creative, it's really hard to, to come to complete terms with that and it's the reality and it's the truth and it's something that we have to strive for significantly um, which is you know if you want to be a great leader it means the team is always the one that gets the credit and you're always the one that takes the responsibility when things don't go well um, and I've been lucky in my career to have a lot of people that showed me that uh, didn't tell me that but showed it to me um, and that one is so so important um, the fourth one I would say is if you want movement move people be emotional. We always tell people when we do our campaigns, we tell you we're not going to bring you a movie that people sit back and watch. We're going to bring you a movement that people step up and participate in. When I have found consistently time and time again that when we drive big emotional stories, things that tie straight to the mission, that make people feel like, how can we not do this? This is exactly who we are. That's all of a sudden where those hurdles are removed and those barriers are removed. You have to make people innately want it. Um, and then the last one is go all in, and this is probably the most important. Um, you have to be all in on your big ideas before, during, after. It means you have to put in all the work. You have to work incredibly hard. Uh, it means when you get approval on an idea, you're willing to put in whatever time it takes. You know, People will rally behind someone that's all in on something, uh, and I think it's just absolutely critical uh, that when it comes to trying to pitch and bring big ideas to life, that people see you as someone who goes all in and sees it to completion. Uh, you know, failure or success all the way to the end. Um, so those are, those would be my five pieces of advice. Uh, but more importantly, maybe just big picture, I'd say is just believe that these things are possible. Um, it's This is an industry that is not known for amazing innovation all the time, for being incredibly nimble all of the time. To me, I find that not only a challenge, but also exciting, um, because it means the bar isn't incredibly high. You know, we're not all trying to invent the, the next s smartphone, and we have a ton of companies with billions of dollars investing on being innovative. Uh, we are oftentimes a culture that embraces comfort and is a little bit risk averse. Uh, and to me, that's a great environment to go in and drive meaningful change. Uh, and it's a way that when you do, you can stand out really, really quickly. Um, so for me, it's it's it's. I think people just need to need to understand that if you want to bring big ideas to market, it is a painful, heartbreaking process. So embrace that, you know, embrace that kind of pain that comes with it and, and understand how much fun it'll be. Uh, Phil Kamarni is the Chief Digital Officer at University of Texas, just said probably everything I just said in like one sentence rather than like 30. Um, he says, quote, cherish the pain that it takes to undertake a big idea. Few get the honor to feel it. Uh, that to me is exactly what it's all about. Well, if people aren't fired up and ready to get after it after that, man, um, really so much there to, to think about and, and inspire our work going forward. And and I, I do want to circle back to the, the more specific marketing discipline part of it, because I, I, I'd be sorry if I didn't, because you did share uh, a lot there that, that, that we could get into in your opening comments. So, and I know we can't, we can't spend too much time on that, but uh, your point about the, the competitive and, and cluttered marketplace uh, and industry that is, so, that is rapidly changing, and I, I, I think we can get bogged down in just the day-to-day -day of that, but the need to step back and, and think about some, um, you know, think about the trends, where the, where the industry is going, obviously your expertise in online education. So I, I'm sure there are some things that uh, in our day-to-day -day as marketers, may not be on a radar screen on a, um, you know, the end of this week that people should be thinking about on a regular basis or more often than they are. 
what are what are some of those uh, higher level things that that should be on our radar screen when they think about marketing their institutions this year and for next year and and the subsequent years? Oh, there is a lot. I love this question. So, <laughs> you know, when I look at the at the future of that and where we are right now, there's a lot of things. One of the first one I'll say is if if your strategy is last year's strategy, it was wrong last year and it's even worse today. Um, the market is shifting and it's shifting quickly, uh, and and the way that it's shifting. Uh, is in a really interesting direction. So you know, one of those, there's some things that are happening in a small sense, so some granular things. Um, paid search, most people know paid search at this point, it's really huge, um, both in Google and in Bing, um, but the reality is when people look at it that trade name search runs out really quickly and generic search is just incredibly expensive. Um, there is no way to make money bidding on online MBA, not when there's 500 online MBAs in this country and people are willing to spend 40 plus dollars just for the click. Um, so what we're finding is channels that we're relying on are not cost effective at all. Uh, and so it means we have to get more creative in driving interest uh, and then therefore even before that driving awareness of those channels. And so I will say the channels that we rely on today in many ways are, are going by the wayside. For the traditional side uh, in direct mail, uh, it is still a piece, but the fact that we're taking three years mailing students for two to three years uh, without an understanding of whether or not they've initiated action and expressed interest uh, is crazy and not going to be economical in the future. Um, and when I look at that, one of the big things for me as a trend uh, is the reality that there is a handful of institutions right now that are growing exponentially faster than others, and that is SNU, WGU, ASU, a handful of other ones. Uh, and one of the key reasons is a spike in what we call referral rate, which is the number of current, the number of incoming students who are referred by a current or former student. And that's really an unbelievably important thing. The referral rate of your institution is probably the most important metric most marketers aren't tracking. And the reason is when there's 500 online MBAs in this country, who's going to price compare? You know, and when there's a million places you can go as a traditional undergraduate, who's going to trust your view book? The reality is what we're seeing is there is, for better or worse, a commoditization that's coming to higher education. And whether or not it's a true commoditization of our offerings or just a commoditization of the way that the prospective students view us and shop for us, it's here. And what that means is more and more people are turning to their friends, their family members, their aunts, their uncles, their neighbors, the person that they know at church, the colleague at the water cooler, and they're asking where their child went to school. Or they're asking, how's that online marketing program that you're taking? And what we're finding is more and more people are just not even bothering to shop because they believe that in some ways they're all created equal, and also it's far too overwhelming. Who's going to price compare 500 online MBAs? Good luck. It's not going to happen. And so what they're going to do is they're going to go to the place where their colleague tells them they're studying. And so we are seeing on the traditional side and on the post-traditional side a spike in referral rate, which really means at the end of the day, the number one marketing tool you have is your experience. Are you delivering on the promise you've made to your current students? Are they actually having the experience you've told them they'll have? It's not just was the tagline really clever, was the creative really beautiful, but once they showed up, did you deliver on your promise? Um, I do believe number one thing I would say is marketers have to take a serious and significant investment in the experience students are having. They can't just think, well, I'm top of the funnel and kind of walk away and not worry about that. That's not going to work anymore. Um, and the world is a lot more connected. It's a lot more crowded. And more than ever, people are looking and listening to what the people they trust are saying. Uh, and it's our job as marketers then to first understand what they're saying, measure it, capture it, and then secondly, figure out what levers we can push and pull to improve that experience so those things that are being said and being reflected are more positive in the manner that we're looking for. Um, that to me is a big blind spot for a lot of us in higher ed, and it's not our fault. That's how we've been structured, and to date it's worked. Um, but that is the biggest one for me is that if we're not worried about the experience we're delivering, we're not really you know, at full capacity as marketers in higher ed. Yeah, an excellent point. We, we can easily get caught up in the, the front end with recruitment work or the back end with what we're doing on the alumni and, and philanthropy side, but the, the direct connection with the student experience, those who are living the brand and, and shaping the brand. And I know you and I have talked about re, uh, retention as well and having that, that, that direct connection to the student experience because it does it. it retention is part of that picture and that overall enrollment picture. It's, there's so many variables that come into play. Uh, when it comes to student retention, but as marketers to insert themselves into that equation, there's there's great opportunity to have a meaningful difference. Absolutely, and that's where I always tell you this is an exciting time to be in higher ed. It's an unbelievably exciting time. Um, to your point, the life cycle conversations and the and the work in re, in retention right now, uh, much of the retention work in higher ed is being done either by advising. 
um, or by there are retention providers. I mean, we even offer a retention as a service solution, uh, which combines coaching and technology and predictive modeling. Uh, and all of that's fantastic. Um, but there also is where's that other piece of, of the marketers in there who are understanding that, you know, what are we communicating? How is it being communicated? How is it being received? Um, all of that stuff, I think, is, is a welcomed world um, that, that we can find a lot of opportunity in if we just kind of shift our focus a little bit. Well, I think we could go on and on. So I hope we can continue the discussion at another time, Seth. But for those who uh, are intrigued and, and may already follow you or may not follow you, where can where can people connect with you or uh, take advantage of, of some of the great content that, that you share and put out there? Yeah, absolutely. So you know, I'm on Twitter at, at Seth Odell. Um, if you want a little bit of background, you can go to SethOdell.com. Um, but if people want, they can email me. Uh, you know, I'm Seth.Odell at gmail.com. Um, on Twitter, just find me. Um, I'm always happy to have these kind of conversations. I'm I'm deeply passionate about this industry. I love this space, and so I do hope yeah, people are listening, connect, reach out. I, I would love to to chat with folks. It would be it'd be always a welcome conversation. Awesome, that's awesome. Well, as always, you have so many great actionable insights, not just for marketers but for leaders in general. So again, I have to make a point of doing this on a on a more regular basis. So thank you again, Seth, and and all the best to you for continued success. Hey, thank you so much. It was, it was great to be back, and I love the conversation. Thanks to Seth for joining today, and thanks, as always, to M. Stoner for making Marketing Live possible. Be sure to get reminders about this and other episodes by subscribing to the Higher Ed Live newsletter. You can browse the archives at higheredlive.com or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. I'm Rob Zinkin. Thanks again for tuning in to Marketing Live on the Higher Ed Live Network.